let's, let's get started and let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this night and we're thankful for the chance to come together to study your word and to reflect on what uh, it means to be your church. We pray that you would guide and direct us that uh, the words of our hearts, uh, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, all right, so we're going to do our technology and it's all going to work great and I'm going to share my slides. Oh, and that's the last slide. All right. Okay, is that looking good? Can anybody see it online? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. All right. So I want to just quickly recap what we did last week before we jump into this week. Um, so last week we talked about a kingdom of God worldview. And um, we talked a little bit about the problem um, of sort of the divisiveness of our culture, especially around politics. And so we talked about the, the ubiquitous nature of politics, that they're sort of everywhere all the time. You can't get away from them. Uh, the echo chamber effect, right, that we hear it from social media and the news and and we sort of get in our own component where we hear the same stuff from the same sort of people. And we talked about particularly the identity-based politics, the idea that um, there was a season we had sort of issue-based politics. I feel strongly about these points, but our country has moved in a direction that's more identity-based. Well, I, I vote with this party, therefore I think these things. Uh, and, and basically the problem was that those create divisions, right? They, they divide us as a church, as a people, as a nation. So we talked a little bit about Jesus's context last week, about the political situation in the first century AD, which had all of the above and more, right? Where identity politics were a thing and uh, people had their own little echo chambers and looked kind of similar to us, but maybe more extreme. And we talked about Jesus's solution and that the initial thing Jesus does is he has this kingdom of God worldview. So he talks about and thinks about the kingdom of God more than any other subject in scripture. And as he does so, that really shapes his view on almost everything else in his ministry. And we're going we're gonna to come back to the kingdom of God in a second. Um, and then we said, how do we apply that today? We talked about how a kingdom of God worldview might change how I consume information, how I talk with other people, how I identify myself. Um, my identity isn't going to be in a party or in a liberal conservative um, spectrum, but in Jesus Christ, right? How I hope and set priorities and achieve victory, all that stuff changes um, when I'm trying to see the world through this kingdom of God idea that Jesus talks about. So very briefly, um, I, I gave you two definitions of the kingdom of God last time. We talked about the kingdom of God as the fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel, right? And that was very intentional language. Like Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the kingdom of God fulfills the kingdom of Israel. It's the completion of that Old Testament idea. And I, I said the kingdom of God exists wherever people joyfully acknowledge Jesus as king and live out a rightly ordered love for God, each other, and God's creation. Okay. And we talked a lot more about that last week. There's more notes uh, if you want to see them, but I'm not going to get through all those tonight because we just don't have time. Um, so I want to move on, and I want to talk a little bit tonight about um, the, the next thing. So um, the, the end of our conversation last week, I said, you know, are we just naive to think that we can get to a point um, as a church and a nation where the Christian voice is one that enables conversation and discourse rather than shutting it down? And I said, I don't think that's naive. And I think one step is this kingdom of God worldview. So I don't want to talk about a second step. Um, and, and it's, it's, 
related to the dangerous lure of simplicity. Um, so uh, to kind of kick that idea off, uh, I'm going to uh, give you a video that tells you the story of a guy named MacArthur Wheeler. Okay. And just want to let you know um, two things about this video before I play it. The first thing is it's a completely true story it happened in 1995. The second thing is I, I recognize the speaker's voice in this video can be a little hard to understand. Um, so if you don't get it all, I'll explain it when we're done, but he's going to tell you the story of a guy named MacArthur Wheeler who robbed two banks in Pittsburgh in 1995, okay? One day in 1995, a man robbed two Pittsburgh banks in broad daylight. He didn't wear a mask or any sort of disguise, and he smiled at surveillance cameras before walking and later that night arrested him. Interestingly enough, when the robber was handcuffed, he was puzzled and he mumbled, but I wore the juice. Apparently this robber thought that smearing lemon juice on his face would render him invisible to bank security cameras. And he didn't just think that, he was pretty confident about it. His rationale was that since the chemical properties of lemon juice are used in invisible ink, it should render him invisible to the bank security cameras. This is obviously a completely dumb way of thinking. But what's interesting is that even after the police showed him the footage of his robbery, he was genuinely surprised that it didn't work, and he thought the footage was fake. The police concluded that this man was not crazy or on drugs, just incredibly misinformed and mistaken. Okay, uh, true story. I know it cut out for a second there online. So um, this guy robbed these two banks, looked at the security cameras and smiled on his way out and thought he was safe because he put lemon juice on his face, which he assumed would make him invisible, right? Um, turns out lemon juice does not make you invisible. So if you have plans to rob any banks tomorrow, I encourage you to wear a mask. Or, actually, don't rob the bank would be a better... Uh, encouragement. Um, so uh, uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, the, we're going to come back to Mr. MacArthur Wheeler in a little, in, in, in a few minutes, but I want to talk about the, the lure of simplicity um, and the, the fear of knowledge that I think Mr. Wheeler embodies. So if you've got a Bible and you want to flip open to the first chapter of Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter one, verse 20. Uh, if you know a little bit about Proverbs, Proverbs is a book, of course, about, it's wisdom literature, but it talks about wisdom very often, and wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs, as though it's a, a person, usually it's portrayed as a woman in Proverbs, and uh, in, in this particular situation, we're going to hear um, the woman, uh, the personification of wisdom, crying out in the street. So verse 20 of chapter 1, wisdom cries out in the street, and the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Okay, so I... I uh, really an interesting passage for me, and, and particularly uh, this line 
Wisdom says, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So I want to think tonight a little bit about simplicity. And uh, I recognize that simplicity is not entirely a, a good or bad thing, right? But as Mr. Wheeler, Mr. Wheeler found out, sometimes a little bit of knowledge can go a long way. And sometimes simplicity can be a problem, right? If you reason so simplistically as lemon juice makes ink invisible, therefore make me invisible, you're in some trouble. So I want to ask you, we're going to put you in discussion groups for just like three or four minutes. It's going to be really brief. And I'm going to ask you to answer two questions. Um, what's good and bad about simplicity? What's good and bad about being simple, right? Because there's some good things, some bad things. What's good and bad about it? And what's attractive about it? Like what's attractive about the idea of simplicity? Does that kind of make sense? Well, I want to talk a little bit about kind of some of those conversations. I heard some really interesting comments here. Um, people talked about the, um, what does simple mean? And, you know, there's a good kind of simple, like we talked about uh, when you're, you know, keep it simple, stupid. When you're trying to communicate a complicated idea, keeping it simple is really helpful. There's a bad kind of simple when you take something that's complex and you dumb it down beyond the point where it's recognizable anymore, right? Um, uh, I think there is something to me really attractive about simplicity because it's nice to feel like I've captured an idea, right? Like I get it, I understand it. And there's something off-putting when somebody keeps bringing in detail after detail after detail and you think, boy, I, I can't ever comprehend all of that. So I, I, I really like simplicity in that regard. Um, so uh, I, I think when the author of Proverbs talks about um, simple as a negative thing, he's clearly not saying, um, you know, being a good communicator is bad. I think the author's saying you can dumb something down beyond the point that's recognizable. So um, I want to think a little bit about the, the, how this becomes a problem for us. And I think this comes up in a, in a number of ways. I think that we can um, sort of get sold on simple issues, simple people, and simple history, right? So I can say, boy, you know, this, this issue about taxes is really simple. If you do A, um, B will happen. If you do C, then D will happen. And there's probably some truth in that, right? But the reality is whenever you're talking about taxes on the scale of our country, it's probably pretty complicated, right? Um, more significant for me is I can come up, I can simplify people, right? I can say, you know what? He's really about this. She's really about that. And, and it becomes a way to almost dehumanize someone, right? To, to turn them into a character, caricature of themselves um, where they um, only have this value related to the one conversation or issue that we're talking about. Um, and I can simplify history, right? I can go back and look at what happened in the past and say, hey, let's just Let's just, let's just skip to the chase on that. And sometimes some of those details in history are really important. And, and my particular concern is sometimes we can simplify theology so much um, that we miss out on the core messages of scripture, right? So I can take a, you know, I can say the Bible wants you to love God and love your neighbor and be a good person. And that's not wrong, right? But if that's all I know, I've missed out on the whole story of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and, and faith in him. And so just knowing love God and love your neighbor isn't enough, right? That's a little too simple. So um, I, I want to talk about how Jesus addresses the problem of, of too much simplicity. And to do that, um, we're going to be in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bible, 
Uh, we're going to flip over to John chapter 8. And um, this is a very familiar story. I hope we'll think about it in a little different way, perhaps, than we have in the past. Um, this is Jesus um, when the woman caught in adultery is brought before him. And so um, we're told in Scripture that each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, that's super important. Remember verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Okay, so um, here's my first question for us. Uh, as we think about this story, um, what are they trying to trap Jesus in? So what are they trying to do to, um, to trick or trap Jesus? Um, any idea? Verse 6 says they're trying to test him. What are they trying to test him for? Any ideas? Legalism. Okay, legalism. I love it. Um, so it's a question about the law and the right way to apply the law. Okay, I love it. That's great. Um, to see if he would say something that was against the law. Fantastic. To see if he would say something that was against the law. So maybe we all know this already, but the Bible, of course, prohibits adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And the punishment for adultery in the Bible is death, right? That's the, the normal um, uh, punishment is death by stoning. Right? So absolutely, they're going to see how is Jesus going to respond? Um, let me ask you this. Um, how is this a political conversation for Jesus? Any, any ideas on this one? We don't usually talk about this very often. Let me answer that by showing you a picture of the temple, okay? So this is what the temple looked like in the day of Jesus. Um, and you can see the, the, this is actually what we would call the, the temple platform or the temple mount. You can see in the middle, right, that central building, that's the temple itself. And the tallest part of the middle building is the holy place, right? And then inside that is the holy of holies. And that's where you go to meet with God. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be. Um, and then uh, there's a little courtyard outside of it. That's the courtyard of the women. And then there's this huge area um, that's fenced by this giant wall. And you see the top of that wall has kind of like a, a walking platform with a colonnade on one side. And on the far side, there's this fortress looking like thing. I'm talking about this right here, okay? Um, that fortress was called the Antonia Fortress. And that was where Jesus was. There was a Roman fortress built on the side of the temple to control the Jewish people. And that's where Jesus is, is tortured uh, and mocked and beaten by the soldiers the day that he's arrested and betrayed, right? On any given day, Roman soldiers patrolled not just the Antonia Fortress, 
but that outer walkway around the exterior wall of the temple. Okay, and Roman law said that no one but Rome had the authority to kill someone, which is why when they want to kill Jesus, they have to go to Pilate, right, and ask Pilate to do it. They don't have the authority to do it. So what, what they're really doing to Jesus is they're trying to trick him and say, do you honor God's law or Rome's law, right? God's law says you must kill this woman. She's been caught in adultery. Rome's law says you cannot kill her because you know, only Rome has that power. And look, there's the Roman soldiers walking around above us to enforce that law. Jesus, what are you going to do, right? I mean, and I don't like these guys, but it's kind of brilliant, but I mean, it's, they, really, they really feel like they've trapped him and this sort of very simple thing. You've got to pick one or the other. Um, and what Jesus does um, so powerfully is he says, hey, there are more than just two options here, right? You guys want to say either I honor the law of God and I will risk my safety by trying to kill this woman or telling you to kill her, or I honor the law of Rome and therefore I'm not a legitimate follower of God. Jesus is going to say, um, there's more than just two options. Um, I believe that the, 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 lore, the dangerous lure of simplicity is this, right? That very often we take complex ideas and make them too simple. And we take many options and make them a few options. And, and um, those two things are what we see all the time in election seasons, right? Now, I've never seen a political commercial for any candidate that was complex enough to touch on all the characteristics of that person or what they think or what they believe. It's all about, let me give you this simple idea, right? Not bad, it's just all about, um, I've never seen a social media post about anything related to politics that was a complex social media, but they're always like, let me tell you this one little thing. Um, and, and so I, I think that the danger of that simplification is sometimes we get stuck in a place where we feel like, hey, we have limited options and we know a lot about these really complicated things. Um, and and, and I, I think the other challenge here is that my, simp my simple understanding, right, is related to my certainty. So the, the people trying to trap Jesus here have a very simple idea of what could happen. Follow the Roman law, follow the Jewish law. And they are certain he's going to pick one or the other, which is why he blows them out of the water, right? Because they don't understand what he's doing. Um, so I want to come back. Th this idea is really interesting for me. And I want to come back for a minute um, to uh, the story of um, the, the bank robber in Pittsburgh and, and talk about this idea of, of simple and certain and how they come together. So um, I'm going to let this video explain a little bit more of, of what we call the Dunning-Kruger effect. So that bank robber in Pittsburgh, real story in 1995, led two social scientists a guy named Dunning and a guy named Kruger to do all kinds of research. And they came up um, trying to explain why this guy was so certain when he knew so little. Uh, and they came up with this thing that we call the Dunning-Kruger effect today. Today, this phenomenon is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Essentially, low ability people do not possess the skills needed to recognize their own incompetence or lack of knowledge. Their poor self-awareness leads them to overestimate their own capabilities. You can clearly see what I mean in this graph here. Having barely any skill or knowledge leads to massive confidence. However, when you become more knowledgeable about a certain topic, that confidence falls. Only when you start to reach above average skill is when your confidence about a certain topic starts to pick up again. 
Contrary to popular belief, this is not just limited to cognitive tasks. It doesn't seem to matter what specific skill we pick. The less a person knows about any given activity, the more likely they are to overestimate their skill or knowledge. The Dunning-Kruger effect can be observed during talent shows like American Idol. The auditions are usually filled with variety of good and bad singers. The ones who are bad at it almost never realize how bad they really are. That's why they're genuinely disappointed when they get rejected. The truth is, we're not very good at evaluating ourselves accurately. In fact, the majority of people believe that they are better than average. 88% of people think that they are better drivers than the majority, and even elderly people rank themselves among the best drivers. Hey, A more ready? interesting example is that 94% of professors assume that they are better in comparison to their colleagues. We judge ourselves as better than others to a degree that violates the laws of math. But why? Why does being less skilled make you more confident in your abilities? I'm going to help you visualize how this happens. This is Mike. He's an amateur photographer. And this box represents how much he knows about photography. And this is how big he thinks the field is and how much there is to know about it. With this reasoning, he's easily at the top percentile of all photographers. But let's say he meets a professional photographer, someone who has been doing it for seven years, but he still has a lot to learn. This photographer knows this much about photography, but he also knows that the field is much larger and there is this much to know about it. Because this photographer is more knowledgeable about the subject, he knows that this gray area exists. However, Mike does not. Now you can see why Mike is so confident in his ability. He has no idea just how much he doesn't know. Because he only has a little knowledge of the field, he doesn't know that it's way more extensive than that. And because he doesn't know what he doesn't know, he thinks he knows 90% about photography. Meanwhile, experts tend to be aware of just how knowledgeable they are, but they often make a different mistake. They assume that everyone else is knowledgeable as well, mostly because others exert so much confidence. In this instance, the photographer is aware he only knows about 70%. But if he met someone like Mike, he would underestimate himself. 90% is better than 70% after all. Okay. Um, uh, this is a fascinating idea for me, and it, and it plays out all the time, and a really helpful video. I don't like the fact he suggests this is about dumb people because, well, maybe I am dumb people, but I did this today. So today, I was driving my kids to school, and my five-year-old son, Asher, who's in kindergarten, and I got into an argument. And our argument was, you know, about the sort of normal things you argue about with a kindergartner. This one particularly was about whether or not Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon, invaded Egypt, or whether that was Alexander who invaded Egypt. So that's like normal five-year-old stuff, right? So we were arguing about this in the car, and my five-year-old son was absolutely certain that Philip II invaded Egypt. And I was pretty sure that he didn't, that it was Alexander who invaded Egypt. Um, but his confidence was sky high. And even though I know a great deal about history, 
I know enough about history to know that I sometimes get things wrong and don't have all the details. And maybe Philip had a small invasion of Egypt I'd forgotten about. And so by the time we got to school, he had almost convinced me that Philip II invaded Egypt, which never happened, right? Um, the, the, the point of that story is um, we all fall into this trap, right, in any capacity um, of thinking we know more about a subject area or a topic because we don't know how complex the topic is or underestimating our knowledge because everyone else seems so confident, right? Really helpful for me. So um, I think about this in a lot of different ways, um, but the, the main one for me is to recognize that a simple understanding leads to overconfidence and incorrect conclusions. This is exactly what happens in the situation with Jesus in the eighth chapter, right? Uh, his enemies are certain that they know every possible outcome that they know um, exactly what the law says, exactly what the Roman law says, and what his options are, and they have him nailed, right? And so not only do they have this simplistic understanding of adultery and what could happen, they also are overwhelmingly confident, right? We got him. Uh, all of us do this, right? All of us do this every, every day some, on some topic. Um, I am convinced that the old person driver thing bothers me, but I, I'm convinced that I'm a really good driver, right? And I would, I'm sure that I'm better than most drivers, right? Uh, and I was convinced of that when I was 16 and just started driving. And I remember an argument with my parents where I said, well, I know you guys have been driving for longer than me, but I just finished driver's ed. So it's more fresh for me. So therefore I know more about driving than you do, right? <laughs> so uh, obviously not correct. Um, I don't know who this came up, who came up with this. But this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Never argue with an idiot. They will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. So that's great. Um, so uh, what's our alternative? How do we avoid that on either side, right? How do we avoid either being the person who oversimplifies and misunderstands um, or being the person who underestimates our own ability? Um, so uh, to answer that, I want to come back to Jesus. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, back to John chapter 8. Um, and I want to talk about how Jesus embraces complexity. I'm talking about Jesus embraces complexity, okay? Um, so uh, I'm going to ask you, um, uh, I think it's obvious he doesn't pick either one of the two options they think he has before him. But I want to ask you in your little discussion groups now to talk about why he doesn't choose either option. Why doesn't he say, we must obey the Roman law or we'll lose our homeland? Why doesn't he say, we must obey God's law and she must die because it's written in Torah? So why doesn't he choose either option? And then particularly in this story, I want you to look for complexity. So what's in this story that's missing or present, but is weird that it's present? What are the clues that John the evangelist is giving us to let us know that this isn't a simple story? Does that make sense? So I want you to, want you to think about why Jesus doesn't pick one of those simple options. And I want you to talk about um, what complexity do you see? You don't have to understand it all. Just what do you see that's, that's weird or um, that's not there, et cetera, okay? Um, so so uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to hear y'all's conversation, but I'm hearing some conversation in here, um, and I heard some really interesting questions and comments. So I'm gonna repeat a few of them, and a few of them I happen to have written down already. Um, uh, what, what do I have here? Uh, okay, so, um, I mean, if you're Jesus, and you're in the temple teaching, is it just a total coincidence that today, your enemies show up and they've got a woman caught in adultery and it's the perfect time to have the, I mean, it's a lot of coincidence, right? For this to be happening. Aren't we supposed to be asking that question? Is this just random? Um, or is this, or is this rigged, right? It sounds a little bit rigged in the story. 
Um, anybody ask, where's the man? It, it takes yeah. two to tango. Yeah, okay. Online you did? Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you. Wait, where's the dude? You cannot commit adultery by yourself. I guarantee it. Um, so there's something unusual about this story, right? They're only bringing half of the parties involved. Um, I know Howie asked, what is Jesus writing? Right? People online, what is Jesus writing? Um, really good question. You are supposed to ask that. I do not know. <laughs> um, but, but let me tell you, um, this is more ink has been spilled on this question maybe than any other in this particular passage. Um, and, and I, I want to I come back to that in a minute because I think it actually does raise some interesting questions for us. Um, um, we were talking in the back. What's the rest of this woman's story? Like she is more than this one act. That she's more than this one thing that she's done. And, and uh, as we were saying, Jesus came to redeem us, right? Not to condemn us. And um, don't we need to know more about her than just this one thing? Uh, and, and then uh, again, somebody here said, um, what about the people in the crowd? Like, what's the rest of their story? Are they just going to be angry people who want to stone somebody because it's a good show? What's the rest of their life about? And didn't Jesus come to redeem them also? Uh, and, and so even in this moment, right, Jesus is working, as, as Jihei said, to a completely different purpose than they're working, right? They, they think the life of faith is about following the rules. And Jesus says, no, it's about redemption, right? And you guys don't get it. I mean, you people in the story don't get it at all. Uh, so I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, oh, just how do I have time to do this? I do, very briefly. Um, the, this question about um, what is Jesus writing? It's one of the really interesting ones for me. I think we're supposed to ask about it. Uh, there are a number of thoughts about this. All of them are just conjecture, right? Because the Bible doesn't say. Um, but one thought is uh, that Jesus is writing down the sins of all the people around him, right? Not, not saying Jim Gates did this, but just gossip, slander, you know, theft, whatever else. And the people in the crowd are looking uh, on the ground as he's writing down all the things that they've done, right? And it, and it calls them to some self-awareness. Um, another really interesting thought is that Jesus is writing down the commandment itself, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, and in so doing, he accomplishes two really interesting things. One is he shows he knows the law, right? Uh, the other one is um, he shows he knows the tradition. So it's, it's supposed to be a Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you can't write because writing counts as work. But if you write on something that doesn't last, like writing in the sand, it does not count as work. So some people think Jesus is showing that he knows not just the law, but all the complexity of the, of the interpretation of the law. He knows it as well or better than any of them, right? So that when he gets up and says something different, um, they can't say, oh, here's an ignorant guy. They say, wow, he, he gets it all, and yet he's still calling us to something higher than the law. Right, which is kind of interesting. Um, what I love about this story, and what I love about what Jesus does, uh, is that he takes um, what could be a really simple question, and he makes it complicated. He makes it complicated because he cares about the people in the crowd, and he cares about the woman, and he cares about the right way to read the law, and he cares about where is the guy, and he cares about is this a coincidence, or are you guys rigging this thing to get me in trouble? Uh, and so, um, he addresses the, the fullness of the situation in a really beautiful way. And, and I think um, maybe that's part of what we are called to do in all of these situations in our world where, where the world wants to tell us, oh, this is so simple. 
maybe we are called to, like Jesus, address the full complexity of all the stuff that we're living in and, and living through. Um, so <clears throat> just a couple ideas. What if we did that, right? What if we embrace complexity like Jesus does? Um, uh, I was thinking about, uh, so we talked about simple issues, simple people, uh, simple history. Complex issues are different. Um, I, I read something this week that talked about the, the topic of uh, um, uh, 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 adoption. And I was reading about why adoption is so wildly unpopular in our country. So um, it's very popular to adopt. It's very unpopular to put your child up for adoption. And um, there, there's huge numbers about this, but you know, we have something like 18,000 uh, adoptions, um, kids put up for adoption a year in our country and like a million abortions, right? So it's a really extreme difference. One's more popular than the other by a large margin. So there's a guy named Chuck Johnson, who's the president of the National Council for Adoption, which is an adoption advocacy group. And he says part of the reason for adoption's unpopularity might be that both anti-abortion and pro-abortion rights groups fail to counsel pregnant women adequately about adoption. According to this adoption group's statistics, the referral rate to adoption centers from both pro-life and pro-choice centers is about 1%. Isn't that interesting? So um, when we come to an issue like abortion in, in our country, right, or adoption in our country, um, we see um, this is more complicated maybe than real. Can't pro-life and pro-choice people all agree that adoption is a good thing, right? Um, why is it that none of us are doing a good job encouraging adoption? And, and what do we do as Christians in, in a context like that? And how does that change how I think about some of those issues when I recognize some of that complexity? Okay. So complex issues are, are not as easy to soundbite, um, but maybe easier to engage, right? Maybe easier to work change. Um, complex people, right? I mean, this is just a no-brainer, but it's so important. Um, in, in our world today, it is very easy, especially in an election season, to categorize people and say, that's a blue person, that's a red person, and that's all there are to them. Um, there was a really interesting study that was done recently about um, uh, conversation of people of different political parties. And they found that, um, in general, if you just throw strangers into a room and ask them some political questions, and they're of all different parties, you're going to get fireworks, right? <laughs> no, no surprise there. We all kind of knew that. But if in that same room you begin with like five to 10 minutes of humanizing questions, right? Icebreakers, share your name, share where you grew up, share how many kids you have, um, share where you, um, you know, met your best friend or whatever. Just five to 10 minutes of those humanizing questions completely change the tenor of the conversations that followed. Right? Because instead of dismissing someone as you're just that, I start recognizing you are a complex person, right? And, and we may not agree on everything, but, but we have a lot in common. I have grandkids too, right? I have, um, and so recognizing the complexity of people as Jesus does here is so important. Um, I, I really, um, I don't have time, but I really want to talk about complex theology a little bit. And um, I, I think, again, it's so easy for us to, to make our faith into something as basic as a set of a few rules or the four laws or whatever. And those things are great, but they got to be an arrow and not a destination, right? Because if our faith could be summarized in, in a couple of slogans and a single Bible verse, we wouldn't need the whole Bible, right? 
Um, if our faith was just about obeying a bunch of rules, we wouldn't need the stories of Jesus. So there's a reason that our Bible is complicated, right? There's a reason that our Bible has all these stories over thousands of years uh, and requires some understanding of what happened in those ancient worlds to make sense of. Um, God is complex and following God is complex. It doesn't mean we can't know anything about Jesus, right? Of course, we can know a lot about Jesus. Um, but we run a risk of making God too simple, right? God's a lot bigger than me. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Um, so I really love that um, in this moment in the Gospel of John, we see um, what incarnation means, right? That, that when, Jesus, when, when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human in Jesus Christ, it's more than just uh, a really cool miracle on Christmas, right? It's, it's a putting on flesh of all the complexity of God. And part of our job as followers of God is to put on flesh and complexity, right? To say, hey, you know what? Um, in this situation, I know we don't agree, but I recognize that you are a person that God died for and loves. And so I got I to gotta include that in our conversation, right? Uh, and, and that idea of sort of incarnating our faith, of, of putting flesh on with all its complexity into a world that wants to make things falsely simple can, in a really good way, I think, help us to think more like Jesus thinks. Um, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there for just a second. Um, and I'm going to put you in groups for one more time, but before I do that, any, any questions about um, what we're talking about before I, I send you in discussion groups? Okay. All right, good. That's fine. Then you're going. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm going to give you about five minutes, and I want you to answer. Um, do I have, I have lots, a lot of questions. I want to answer um, uh, at least the first two, okay? The first question is, where are you personally tempted to love being simple? That's the language of Proverbs, right? Um, and why? Um, wh where is it easier for you to, to, to oversimplify things in your life? <clears throat> this could be anything you want. Where, where are you tempted to love being simple? And, and what complexity does Jesus call you to recognize? Where does Jesus call you to incarnate, to put flesh on um, a, a person or a topic or an issue or, or a theology or whatever, right? Um, so where are you tempted to love being simple? And what complexity does Jesus call you to recognize? Okay, uh, I, I'm sorry. I hear some good conversations. I hate to interrupt you, but um, I want to bring us back for a minute. Um, so uh, I, I heard really interesting things, but... Um, uh, Shirley Hodgson was just, I'm going to share what you said, Shirley. Is that okay? Um, we were just talking about um, uh, being a parent, being a grandparent, etc. And um, when you're younger, having this idea that if I just make all the right choices, I can produce the child I want to produce, right? And I certainly, in terms, this is where I'm tempted to love being simple, right? I just got to do X and, and Y and Z, and my kid will be the right kind of kid. Um, and the wisdom that comes with age of recognizing, I can influence my kid, but I can't control my kid. Uh, and they're a lot more complex than that. Uh, and I have to have some peace. I have to learn to have some peace in saying, you know, I'll love my children, I'll influence them towards Christ, and I'll trust that the rest of it's in God's hands because there's always going to be stuff that I don't know. Right? Um, that's a, that was a great example for, um, that Shirley had about um, that idea of loving being simple and the complexity Jesus calls you to recognize. Um, any other uh, any other illustrations anybody wants to throw out? Um, 
Anything from anybody online that, that came up in your conversations? Well, we had pointed out that the reason we love being simple is it doesn't require a lot of work. Uh-huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we call it taking the high road because <laughs> you just don't want to... <laughs> You don't want to get complex. Right. Uh, that's a really good point, right? It's almost always easier to keep it simple. Not always better, but almost always easier, right? If I have to get in and, and learn your whole story and learn about where you came from, it might change my opinion. And I kind of like my opinion. So I'd, I'd rather just stay, stay distant. Yeah. Her. I think in the fourth verse, it suggests that we add prudence to simplicity. Ah, uh-huh. Good. Pr prudence to simplicity, right? Adding prudence to simplicity. No, tell me what prudence is. Uh, wisdom. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's great. Good. Um, okay. I, I know I'm out of time. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, I want to end every week kind of asking the same question. So my hope is that we can come up with some sort of Jesus-centered ideas to help us um, in all kinds of seasons of our lives, not just in election seasons, to have discourse with people that we don't always agree with. And so at the end, every week, I'm going to ask, is this naive, right? Are we being naive to think that these little things can make a difference and allow us to have conversation with folks that um, used to be uncomfortable and now might be more comfortable? Um, and I'm going to say the same thing. Um, I'm not suggesting that if you avoid oversimplifying things and you embrace Jesus' comfort with complexity, um, political debate will end in our country. <laughs> That's not my point. Um, but I think it could change the tenor of the debate. Right? I think it could. I think if we, as a, as a people of God, could say, um, Jesus came to incarnate these concepts, and we have to incarnate, we have to put flesh on um, these issues and these topics and these people uh, and this theology, um, it might change how we talk about it. And it might allow us to talk about things um, in a way that um, not just maybe preaches what Jesus taught, but also preaches as Jesus loved. So that's my hope. Okay. Um, so just uh, uh, next week, um, we're going we're gonna to kind of continue this conversation a little bit. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, um, where Jesus gets the question, you know, what should you do to ta uh, regards to taxes? And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we're going to talk about the power of imagination, the power of imagination. Um, so we'll be back next week. But before we go, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this night, um, for the folks that we got to talk with, for the privilege of um, your word, for the reminder of um, our tendency to over, uh, be overconfident in our knowledge and um, to oversimplify those things that are complicated and for your willingness to put flesh on and make messy the things that we would like to be simple and clean. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you got messy for us, and we pray that uh, you would allow us to do uh, and to love and to think in a similar uh, incarnated messy way so that um, people might see us and somehow see you too. This we pray in your holy and mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.